Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. In today's episode, author and longtime Charlotte sports writer Scott Fowler shows us his varied talents as a writer. Many readers know Scott for his insightful and entertaining sports coverage for the Charlotte Observer and for his nonfiction sports books. But you might be surprised to know that he's written a young adult book and that he co wrote and starred in a true crime podcast that Sports Illustrated called The Best Podcast of 2018. In addition to discussing that podcast, which is called Caruth, the podcast about the infamous Carolina Panther who hired a hitman to shoot his pregnant girlfriend, Scott reads from Panthers Rising, a book about the Panthers and how they roared to Super Bowl 50. Scott also reads and discusses Lost on the Road to Nowhere, a young adult adventure story about four children lost in the North Carolina woods. He gained his inspiration for that story from his own family. Scott starts with a read from Panthers Rising called The Smile Ministry about a young man named Chancellor Lee Adams the child of Ray Carruth and Sharika Adams, the boy who lived when his mother died of the criminal designs of his father. And I'm excited to let you know that this is the 50th episode of Charlotte Reader's Podcast in less than a year. So we've been busy. And it's been fun. And it's been an honor to have all these authors on the show giving voice to their written words. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. These are the stories that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. The Smile Ministry The smile is what first strikes most people about Chancellor Lee Adams. It is a full-out, thousand-watt grin. He wakes up smiling and he goes to bed smiling, Adams says. He's had that same happy spirit his whole life. I tell him he's in the smile ministry. I've had numerous people in stores come up and tell me, you know, I was in a really funky mood and this boy just keeps smiling. And I just cannot be mad when he's smiling like that. Chancellor has never known his mother, except through pictures. He has never known his father, although Sandra Adams keeps a few pictures of Ray Carruth around their house too. His life mostly revolves around G-Mom, as he calls his grandmother, and all the places she takes him school, physical therapy, horseback riding, and dance. He doesn't ask about either of his parents much, Adam says, and he doesn't understand too much about her death. G-Mom uses pictures to tell him stories about his mother, though, including this one. 
After his birth, Chancellor was immediately whisked away by doctors because of all his health issues. Sharika knew he was alive, but on the day after his birth, she lapsed into a coma from which she never awoke. So Chancellor and Sharika only spent a few minutes together, and only once, a few days before she died in December 1999. Sharika had gotten worse and worse, Adam says, and she was being kept alive only by machines. The family knew she was close to dying. They asked if Chancellor, who had gradually been getting better in the neonatal unit one floor away, could come see her. Dr. Hickey and a favorite nurse brought Chancellor to Sharika. They wrapped him in a blanket. They laid Chancellor on his unconscious mother's chest for five minutes. I will never forget that, Hickey says. I will never forget the sadness and the respectfulness of everyone in that room. Says Adams, all of Sharika's monitors were stable. They were doing the work of keeping her alive. But when they placed Chancellor on her chest, the monitors shot up. Her heart rate was just going crazy. You knew she felt his presence there. I know that she knew he was well. Scott Fowler is a national award-winning sports columnist for the Charlotte Observer and the author or co-author of nine books, including his most recent, Panthers Rising, 2016. Most of his books are about sports, but in 2012 he published Lost on the Road to Nowhere, a young adult fiction book that has been integrated in several elementary school curriculums in North Carolina. If Scott had to pick the favorite stories he's written for the Charlotte Observer, it would be his three award-winning stories in 2015, 2016, and 2017, that makes up the Chancellor Lee series. Stories about the smiling boy in his opening read who was raised with the loving care of his grandmother, Sandra Adams. These stories led Scott to narrate the hit podcast, Carruth. Scott graduated Phi Beta Kappa with a journalism degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1987 and focuses many of his columns on the Carolina Panthers and the NFL. His newspaper stories have won more than 20 national awards, including five number one Associated Press Sports Editor Awards. Scott and his wife, Elise, live with their four children just outside of Charlotte. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Landis. Hey, Scott, in addition to the many, uh, many accomplishments I mentioned, you've also, according to your bio, you've appeared on ESPN's Outside the Lines. You've been a frequent guest on local and national sports radio talk shows. And you've had an on-camera presence on a 2009 HBO documentary about the UNC Duke basketball rivalry. So... How does it feel finally to be able to come on Charlotte Reader's podcast? Well, this is the culmination <laughs> of a dream. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, you've been writing in Charlotte for many years, um, and I've, you know, I've lived here and, and read a lot of your work. And I expect you've gotten offers over the years to go other places. Why stay in Charlotte? What, what, what kept you here? Well, uh, as everyone who probably is listening to this podcast knows, the quality of life here is fantastic. Right. And uh, I have had, you know, uh, some opportunities, not not just untold ones, but some. And uh, this, my wife is from very close by. Uh, we have raised our four children all in the same house for uh, 21 years now, and that's a rarity, right? And mm-hmm. so, the stability and the quality of life, and the fact that I realized, you know, actually, when I was um, tw- in my late 20s and mid 20s very driven and really felt bigger was better all the time so I left when I was 25 I got to the Miami Herald which was maybe 
close to the next step, right? And so I was doing um, some coverage there and Miami Dolphins and some other fairly high-profile stuff. And then I started realizing, man, I really miss the Carolinas. Mm. I grew up in Spartanburg, and uh, so only about 80 miles from here. And so ultimately, I took uh, about a $10,000 pay cut, which in that, that was pretty mm-hmm. substantial because mm-hmm. I wasn't making that much, uh, to come back to Charlotte in 1994. Uh, right it, before the Panthers. Right? Well, and that, was, that wasn't no coincidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. They, they created the job. Thank you, thank um, you, thank you, Jerry yes, yeah. right. Yeah. So I do owe uh, the Panthers uh, some. They helped me because they, they existed. And if they right. hadn't, I would have still maybe gotten here, but maybe not quite as quick. Well, wouldn't you rather cover the Panthers and the Miami Dolphins? Well, it's turned out that way, although at the time, people right, at the thought time, I was at the nuts. Time. Right, yeah. right, 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 because you're yeah. coming to a new franchise. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. With uh, who was our first quarterback, Kerry? Kerry Collins. Kerry Collins, yeah, yeah, that's right. All right, so um, you told me before the podcast um, that, you know, I asked you about your favorite stories, and the one that came to your mind right right away was the stories you've written about Chancellor Lee Adams and his grandmother, Sandra Adams. And what I'm curious about is why – this story has resonated so much with you? A couple of reasons. I think you learn after a while that if you're writing about sports, if you're doing it well, I think you're writing about life, not just about the stats mm-hmm. and who won a game or whatever. And this story to me has encompassed so many of those most basic human emotions that we all go through, love, betrayal, uh, death, mm-hmm. grace, forgiveness. And, and it also has true heroes, I think, at the center of it in Sandra Adams and Chancellor Lee Adams. Sandra was Sharika Adams' mother. Sharika was the young lady who was murdered, who was once Ray Carruth's girlfriend. And, and, then, and just for those who are listening, yeah. it'll, it'll become clear, but Ray Carruth was a uh, star receiver for the Carolina Panthers. Um, number got, one draft n- pick. Number one draft pick. And right. uh, it was big news in Charlotte at the time because um, you, know, you have – a major sports celebrity is being put on trial for being involved in the murder of his girlfriend. Right, a nationally televised trial back when mm-hmm. Court TV existed. It was on every single day. Yeah. Uh, this was really Charlotte's version of the O.J. Simpson trial. Mm-hmm. And so it has been, and, and I happened to come into, you know, the picture, well, I was here before it started, so I covered Ray Carruth's draft day and kind of have, have been fortunate to stay in the city for the whole time. So this story has really unfolded under, over the period of 20 years. Mm-hmm. And to me, really has been sort of the story of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I've devoted a lot of time and resources to it. And I've had a lot of help and a lot of encouragement from a lot of colleagues at The Observer. So Mm -hmm. that's how the podcast and the a very long series uh, came to be last season. Yeah, and people may think, well, Landis, what do you – I mean, this is is not writing. This is a podcast. But actually, what people may not realize is there's a lot of writing that goes into the production of a podcast. You did a lot of writing before you even did the podcast about – what you were going to do with the information, right? That's right. And the podcast was published simultaneously with a 30,000-word series in the newspaper, which is extraordinarily long these days for a newspaper series. That's an entire novella. Kudos (laughs) to my editors for letting me do that. Um, And and so, yes, it was was kind of a – a multimedia thing, I guess you'd say. Well, we're going to do – we're going to play the trailer, Scott, and we're going to talk some more about the podcast. Okay. Just after midnight on November 16, 1999, 24-year-old Sharika Adams was shot in Charlotte, North Carolina. She'd gone to a movies with her boyfriend, Ray Carruth, who was at that time a Carolina Panther, 
and she was following him home, and a car drove up beside her. And I fired one shot, then four more shots. Bam, 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 bam. She was screaming. She was drowning in her own blood. I'm Scott Fowler, a reporter for the Charlotte Observer. And for the past 18 years, I've covered everything that came after that night. Now, on the eve of Ray Carruth being released from prison, the Charlotte Observer and McClatchy Studios take you beyond the story that shocked the sports world. Ray Carruth left Sharik Adams and his own son for dead. They were able to deliver the baby, Chancellor Lee. It's miraculous. He survived. Sharika was in very bad shape when she came in. We're tragedy. She was able to live for 28 days. One of the questions was, do you think Ray was involved? And she just made a question mark. I was not there. I can't testify to anything that happened to Sharika on Ray Road. Meets a grandmother's love. He has cerebral palsy because of the lack of oxygen to the brain. Ma'am, you got to help me to help okay. yourself. Where are you at? He hadn't hired these people to kill Sharika Adams. I'm apologizing for the loss of her daughter. I'm apologizing for the impairment of my son. The legacy of Caruth. I'm just so thankful. I can associate November 16th with the day my grandchild was born, our miracle boy. Coming October 16th on Apple Podcasts, charlotteobserver.com slash Caruth or wherever you get your favorite shows. You have a birthday coming up? Yeah. Yeah? Do you know how old you're going to be? Yeah. How old? 18. 18. That's right. All right, Scott. Having listened to, to the trailer, and by the way, I listened to all eight episodes plus the epilogue, and it's it's in this it's in the kind of the mode of serial, which was, you know, one of the first you know true crime podcasts that sort of captured, you know, the imagination in the podcast world, and this podcast did too. You had over uh, I don't know how many millions of well, <laughs> downloads. And, 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 and I don't yeah, want to over exaggerate. Yeah, yeah, it certainly yeah, wasn't serial, yeah, but we yeah, have yeah, had yeah. more than half a million downloads. Right, right. That's yeah. a lot of downloads. I can speak to that being a podcast guy. But this was what we call a highly produced podcast. Uh, yes. Lots of research, investigative reporting, field recording, post-production recording, editing. Talk just briefly about the process of, of making that as a – because you're a sports writer. And, yeah, so, right. I didn't know what I was doing, of course, um, with uh, post-production. All right. That. Fortunately, we had a, an audio genius, a, a couple yeah. of them, really, that worked on it. But, but even so, you, 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 when, you write the, a, when you write an article, yeah. you, you might go about it a little bit differently than when you're putting together some copy to kind of get, get a podcast right. out. I learned real quickly uh, all the benefits of an iPhone or a smartphone in that I, rec- I started recording everything, and mm-hmm. that does kind of come through sometimes in the podcast, like you say, field recordings. Right. Finally, in the epilogue, you know, I tracked down Ray Carruth in uh, Pennsylvania after he's been released from prison, and I he wouldn't allow me to record inside his home. However, I did record kind of before and after sort of contemporaneous thoughts. Mm. And a lot of that was different than thinking about as I'm writing a story, usually I'm just recording for my own self and then I go back and transcribe it and have the luxury of time to write it. This was different. I tried to do, um, I tried to do it as they told me to do it, which was record everything and throw 99% of it away, <laughs> right? Well, but, all, we got, there are a number of stories. We could spend the whole podcast. We're not going to do that, talking about th- this podcast, Caruth. Um, but I want to talk about a couple of storylines. Uh, from your personal experience standpoint, you went and interviewed the hitman. I did. In the 
Central, Central prison, prison in Raleigh. So what was that like? Very surreal. Yeah. Um, his name is Van Brett Watkins, and you heard heard him on that clip a minute ago. He's the one who says, I fired one shot and four more shots. So he was he had no connection with Sharika Adams, really didn't know her at all, but was hired by Ray Carruth in a conspiracy to commit murder, basically. So he's in while Ray Carruth is out of prison, Van Brett Watkins is in prison for the rest of his life, mm-hmm. ultimately. Uh, we and it a, certainly comes across on, in the audio. This guy is is a mean dude. <laughs> he is. Uh, he and not yes. entirely stable. Probably yeah. not. We had a. You know. You remember that scene? If it, for, if you're for old time movie fans, Silence of the Lambs, yes. when Jodie Foster yes. sees Hannibal Lecter for the first time. That's a little bit how I felt when I saw Van Brett Watkins. We had corresponded some already. Uh, he had had to give permission for me to come. I didn't totally surprise him. But then we sat there for three, more than three hours, um, and he alternated between being very calm and logical and explaining what happened that night from his perspective to uh, being very angry and a couple of times telling me, if you don't believe me, just get out, just go. Mm-hmm. You know, And I knew this was my only chance, probably had taken many, many months to set this interview up. Uh, so I didn't get out, and I just listened to him. and. Uh, he is somewhat terrifyingly logical at times, and other times would go off on, on a tangent where he just didn't, you know. There yeah, was, it and, was weird. And, and he was, it a, was weird. He was an admitted killer, so when you went there, yes. you kind of had a sense of what you were going to get. Now, when you went, this is the other storyline I want to talk with you about. When you f- finished the podcast and you're working toward the epilogue, you're, Ray Carruth has been released from prison. You find out he's in Pennsylvania. You take a road trip not knowing whether he's going to answer the door. What were you thinking you might find compared to what you did find? Well, that's right. I took a road trip to what I'll say it was an undisclosed location in right. Pennsylvania. And I didn't purposely surprise him. If I'd had a phone number, I would have called it. In fact, I did email a couple of times to an email address I thought might be right. Uh, but ultimately... I rented a car and showed up, and what I guess I probably thought I would find was uh, Landis that I just thought he's probably not going to answer the door mm-hmm. if they if they do because uh, he's staying with a friend there. If they do, they're just going to turn me away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I felt like I had to because I had come up on this address mm-hmm. uh, with some digging that I had to go. I mean, here I had devoted a, really a year of my working life along with a photographer of ours, wonderful guy named Jeff Siner. We've done so much work on this, our audio people, Davin and Rachel and such, and so I had to go. But I really didn't think I was going to get much. And so, uh, But Ray answered the door and came outside and talked to me briefly, kind of halfway recognized me from our time back 20 years ago. Uh, and I had not sat down with him one-on-one. I think you since. said in the epilogue, you said he, he, he laughed as if uh, I knew you'd show up sometime. He did say that. <laughs> he laughed. I, t- I, re- I reintroduced myself, yeah. and he goes, I had a feeling you might show up yeah. sometime. By this time, he understood how much uh, time I had devoted to sort of the, the case. Now, he still maintains his innocence to R- this day. Right, but he he's a lot of evidence against him. The jury, jury found him guilty of conspiring yes, to commit did. this murder. But two different personalities from what you saw in Central Prison with Van Brett Watkins and what you ran into in Pennsylvania with Ray, Ray Cruz. Ray is charismatic even today. Uh, he invited me inside, 
offered me bottled water. We sat at his kitchen table. And you talked about Cheerio boxes. We talked about <laughs> why he had 10 different uh, boxes of Cheerios on his table. And he said when he was in prison, he saw a commercial. And that commercial inspired him basically to say, oh, my goodness, look at all these different kinds of Cheerios that have come out since I was incarcerated. And there was also, also kind of a father-son element to it. But in any case, yes, he had tried them all. Uh, mm. And he, he showed up, you know, he answered the door with a cleaning rag. He's he's kind of obsessively clean. The apartment was mm-hmm. a, a, a or home. It was excessively clean. and uh, but it, he, was, he it was different than what I expected, but I did right. get the charisma right away. I, it made me remember, oh, yes, that's right. He can turn on the charm whenever he wants. But then it led to communications with him after that. and uh, Emails mainly. Do you yes. – do you, there was sort of an on-again, off-again about whether he wanted to see his son and didn't want to see his son. And then in the end, he told you that he did, but he was going to give space to Sandra Adams, the grandmother who's raised his son. Right. Do you believe that he does want to have some kind of relationship with his son? I believe he sort of wants to if it's fairly easy and mm. Sandra wants it too. I also think he's happy to not do it at this point if it's going to cause conflict. Mm-hmm. Well, he really does he really doesn't want any more conflict, any more publicity. Right. Any of that. That's why he's turned down multiple possibilities for interviews. He just wants to kind of live his own life and Sandra and Chancellor certainly are living their own lives in Charlotte. Yeah, and let's not spend too much time on the on the convicted killer. Let, let's let's turn back for a minute to Chancellor Lee. You, you did these three stories the first one in 2015 was called Surviving and Thriving. Chancellor Lee Adams turned 16. Well, he's not 16 now. Is he surviving and thriving? He still is, yeah. yeah. I, I tell you, he, he is a wonderful young man, no longer a kid. He's a, he's a young man, and that part, I'm really glad you had me read that part about the smile ministry because I really think it's true. I mean, I've seen him connect with so many people, and he really cannot speak more than one or two words at a time generally. Uh, especially to a stranger, something, but that smile—it just—it it inevitably lifts people's spirits. It's, a, it's kind of a beautiful thing to see. Yeah, well, you can tell listening to you as you interview him that you've you've got a connection with this young man, and he has—I don't know if it's just he responded to you, but it sounds like he responds to everybody in that way. I think yeah. in some ways that's true, yeah, yeah. But, but he has seen me off and right. on for several years. Now, the, the, the second uh, piece in 2016. Ray's crew's sons will be in prison. Will be at the prison gates when the father who wanted him dead goes free. At that time, Sandra Lee thought she was going to take him and see him, but then she changed her mind. That's right. Give us some insight on that. That's right. At the time, she thought she was going to be outside the prison gates when Ray Caruth was released. It was a big deal when he was going to get released because he'd been in prison for 19 years, and she kind of wanted to be there and more or less give mm-hmm. him a piece of her mind. I guess you would say. Uh, at that time, have some things to say, and also to show him Chancellor Lee, his son, who he had not seen since he was a year old. But she ultimately changed her mind on that, maybe wisely, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, she she knew that it would be, and I was there the day he was released, 
Um, Which was a non-event, according it to the was podcast. A, it <laughs> was a non-event, but a it was it had all the makings of a media circus right. if yeah. there had been that sort of element. And ca- instead, it was a bunch of TV anchors doing right. stand-ups looking at right. an empty at, at a car, parking lot. Car driving and off. a car driving off because <laughs> Ray wasn't going to speak. Right. But if Sandra and Chancellor Lee had been there, it would have been way different. So they, they went somewhere else far away from there, and that probably was wise. At the time, though, they thought they were going to they were going to be there. But there's something about Sandra Adams that comes out in the podcast and in your writing about this story. In, in the story you published in 2017, you make a point that Sandra continues to preach forgiveness. And, and I suppose you, you spent a lot of time around her and around her, her grandson. What? I mean, it's hard to sort of fathom forgiving someone yes, that's murdered your child. Can you give us some, from what you've learned, a little bit about this person who has that ability and where she's coming from? I can, although, again, as you say, it's somewhat foreign to me. I I don't know. I know, in in fact, I know I couldn't do it, not Mm -hmm. at the level she's done it. The short answer is her Christian faith. Mm -hmm. She is an absolutely avid Christian and believes that Sharika now is in is in a better place, but and, and that also that Jesus preached forgiveness, and so mm-hmm. as hard as it is, now she doesn't say forgiveness means reconciliation to her. Those are two different things, and that's why she hasn't necessarily pursued allowing Ray have you know to have mm-hmm. much of a relationship, any relationship really with his son. But yes, I've heard her. I've heard her say it so many times. I know it's genuine because she really does. Um, she. She's, she's a graceful person who, who ultimately has said, you know, the old quote about revenge is uh, like me drinking poison and wishing that you'd die or mm-hmm. whatever, however that goes. That's what she, she feels like uh, if she just had vengeance in her heart that it would, you know, she needs to, she needs to be healthy and stay alive for her grandson. And that's, that's part of the way she does it is the, via forgiveness. So one more question about Caruth, uh, and we're going to move on to some of your other projects and other writings um at the end of the podcast which i would commend to anyone who's listening go, go listen to this podcast there's a question that ray cruz asked you in a letter and he says he doesn't want an answer um and you don't give an answer on your podcast but i'm going to ask you about the question <laughs> he says do you think it's possible for a generally good person to get him or herself involved in a situation as heart-wrenchingly horrible as the one i was in or is it your belief that such a person can only be cut from the worst of molds? What do you think, Scott? Yeah, I, I struggled with that when he when he wrote it, and I saw it um, in print. But I've come to the conclusion that, as I've talked to more people about it, absolutely. I think what he's asking is, can a good person be in a bad situation? Can you find? Can you make some enough bad mistakes that you end up or end up in a place where you never thought you'd be? Absolutely, yes. That's happened to me. That's happened to a ton of people. Now, could you find yourself in a place where you are convicted of hiring a hitman to kill your pregnant girlfriend? Very few of us probably would go to that level, but but uh, it's possible. But it's possible. Yeah. Right. Speaking of um, people who make bad decisions and end up in places they don't want to be, let's talk about the Panthers a little bit. <laughs> because, uh, That's a good segue. Yeah, good segue there. So i got a little section you're going to read from your book, Panthers Rising, just to set this book up for a second. Th- this book you wrote after the Panthers uh, 
went to the Super Bowl in 2016, right? Their second Super Bowl, right? Se- second Super mm-hmm. Bowl. And I was there, by the way, out in really? yeah, San wow. Francisco. Nice. It, was, it, was, it was like, you know, watching snails move along. Uh, yeah. You know, it was wasn't, just, wasn't real exciting. It, was, it, 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 was, yeah. it was tough. I mean, particularly – we just thought, come on, just just get something going. Even at the end, just just you know, yeah. you got this. You I know, know it. You kept, know? <laughs> it kept feeling that way. It kept feeling that way, but we just never got good done. Yeah. But but like any good story, um, there's got to be an arc, and for there to be an arc, there's got to be a bottom. <laughs> and so, I'm going to have you start reading a section of Panthers Rising, which has us a little bit close to the bottom. All right. Absolutely. Two and fourteen, Jimmy Clausen and rock bottom. If you're going to make a dramatic climb, at some point you must start at rock bottom. In terms of on-the-field performance, the Carolina Panthers have had two rock bottom seasons in their history. In 2001, the Panthers went 1-15. Two years later, they made it to the Super Bowl before losing to New England. But that team gradually faded as players grew older and draft picks didn't work out. By 2010, the Panthers were a shell of the team that had made the playoffs in 2003, 05, and 08. By 2010, the Panthers and coach John Fox no longer saw eye to eye. Fox was a lame duck coach, widely and correctly assumed to be playing out the string before he moved on to another head coaching job. Owner Jerry Richardson didn't want to renew Fox's contract at that point, and the Panthers were basically purging a lot of big salaries from the books, which meant they were playing more for the future than for that season. Ultimately, that worked out okay. If not for going 2-14 and 14 in 2010, the Panthers would never have been in a position to draft Cam Newton with the number one overall pick of the 2011 draft. But Panthers fans first had to endure, endure some serious scars from that 2-14 and 14 season. That went for riders that covered the team, too. In my 20-plus years covering the Panthers, the 2010 season was the only time I ever dreaded going to work to cover the team. They were just so boring, so inept, so predictable. That 2010 team set a number of dubious team records, chief among them that it scored only 17 touchdowns in 16 games. One of those was an interception return TD by cornerback Captain Munnerland, so the offense only scored 16, one TD per game. If you are a Panthers fan, do you remember how awful it felt for the Carolina to score only one TD in all of Super Bowl 50? The 2010 Panthers played like that most of the time. They had 10 points or fewer in half their games. They averaged 12.25 points per game, easily the fewest in the NFL. Compare that to the 2015 Panthers, who scored 59 touchdowns and averaged 31.25 points per game, most in the NFL. In five years, the Panthers went from worst to first in NFL scoring. Oh, Scott, I'm a permanent seat license holder and I remember those Jimmy Clausen years. Oh. <laughs> that was that was some bad pain, times. Painful. It was like uh, take the snap, get tackled, take yeah. the snap, get <laughs> sacked right. again. Yeah. Third uh, and twenty. Yeah. In fact in the same chapter you say that some people started calling it a permanent sucker license. Yes. Right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um and yet uh, without that sort of rock bottom as you describe it, uh, the Panthers wouldn't have been in a position to draft Cam Newton, uh, and that sort of w- – would you say that that draft pick is sort of the key to the Panthers' turnaround? Probably so. Uh, that and then Luke Keekley right. came Right, Luke, Luke came, year. that added to the both sides so of the you ball. So you had – yeah, you had two really fantastic draft picks 
in two years. Uh, I asked Ron Rivera one time, what percent is the quarterback of an NFL team? And he's a defensive guy, the Panthers' current head coach. Percent in terms of success for the team. Yeah, percent. Yeah. How important yeah. is the quarterback? And he had this real weird number. He said 55%. Well, he would know. He's Riverboat Ron. You know? Riverboat Ron, that's right. <laughs> so when you've got Jimmy Clausen out there versus Cam, and obviously Cam's not perfect, and he's been hurt some the last right. couple of years, so you wonder if that's going to ever uh, come back fully to where he was in 2015 but uh, you've always got a chance and when you had Clawson or some of the other guys they've employed over the years you really didn't have a chance so now they've you know they've had a couple of down years since this book they certainly Panthers rising may have uh, been a jinx on them to have the title like that because they haven't exactly risen uh, ever since then but they also with Cam out there have a shot at the playoffs every year and even as you know even though they have had some off years, they've still made the playoffs something like four of the last six years. Would well, you ever go back and read your columns and, and your book uh, in terms of your predictions? And go, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, at the end of this book, you're you're pretty upbeat uh, yeah. about the Panthers' success. I mean, you, you didn't exactly say they were going to come back and win it the next year. You kind of hedged a little bit there. But you were saying we're going to be back quickly to the Super Bowl. Yes. They quickly, I, I think, maybe has already come and gone. Right. So now it's just, uh, will they ever get back here again, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the thing is, is that, you know, the Cam and Luke Keekley years, how many more years do you have of that? So you can't waste those years. And so this year they've got to – well, you'd think they're going to have to need to make the playoffs probably for Ron Rivera to make to probably keep his job. And once you when you change coaches, a lot of times then – you drop again for a year or two. So I feel, better do something this year. I feel like, you know, we're sort of at the Kentucky Derby following around to see how the stallion's legs are doing, except in this case it's Cam's arm. shoulder mm-hmm. <laughs> and arm. I mean, there's so much coverage on, on just whether he's oh, – how yeah. does that throw look? Is that, is that a good yes, throw? Yes, right. A, was that a was good that, 12-yard throw? Yeah, yeah. Was that, how long was that one? He, he threw it long. That's great. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. But it, you, could, you could see what happened last year when we were had such a good start. And then his shoulder went bad. And all right. Anyway, we could talk yeah. about Panthers. We're not going to do that. We're not going to talk about Panthers all game. We're going to we're going to do this. Uh, listen, we're going to take a short break, uh, and when we come back, uh, we're going to get into uh, some of Scott's uh, writing life, and then we're going to also talk about this young adult uh, book that he's written. So stay with us. Hey, listeners, I've got a literary service announcement here that involves the North Carolina Writers Network. I'm a member of that network, and I've gotten a lot out of uh, attending uh, their conferences. So I want to let you know about the conference they've got coming up this fall. Uh, if you want to combine a little uh, uh, writing craft with uh, Fresh Mountaineer, they're going to have their conference in Asheville the weekend of November 8th, 9th, and 10th. And some of the highlights are that uh, the keynote address will be by Ron Rash on Saturday, Joseph Bethanti read from his collection Brothers Like These written by Vietnam vets and a Saturday night performance by Pam Harmonious celebrating women in fiction there'll be the normal masters classes uh, Abigail DeWitt will teach the fiction class Jeremy Jones the nonfiction class and Nicole Brown the Je- and Jessica Jacobs the poetry class there'll also be other classes available to anyone who attends uh, as well as open mics, faculty readings, one-on-one critique sessions with agents and editors, panels, networking sessions, and lots of exhibitors. In fact, I'm going to be one of the exhibitors uh, at this conference uh, with information about this podcast. So if you do decide to go, uh, stop by and say hello. 
You can find out more about uh, this conference at the North Carolina Writers Network website, which is ncwriters.org. Charlotte Readers Podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice, because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. All right, I'm back with uh, Scott Fowler, longtime uh, sports writer for the Charlotte Observer and author of at least nine books, uh, including a young adult novel as well. So, Scott, before we get into your young adult book, I want to talk to you a little bit about writing life. We do this every time on the, on the podcast. Now, you, you're you got two or three heads when it comes to writing. You're you're a sports writer. You're a, a novelist. You now done this podcast thing. Uh, sort of, I guess the question I have is, what's different and what's the same about writing a newspaper column and writing a book? Well, I think the similarity in any kind of writing or video or podcast is you've got to have the great story, right? I think storytelling, by definition, you got to have the story. You can have a great narrator or something, or you can have an author you really like, but still, if the story is poor, it's kind of hard to fall follow with it so I think that's the the key to most of it is Mm. like I always tell young journalists and stuff if you can just report the heck out of the story get some more stuff once you have great stuff pretty easy to put the great in my mind pretty easy to put the great stuff together now that's of course nonfiction. now Mm. in fiction you're you know and I've only I I've only done one fictional book but that's different where it's it's all happening inside your head or I don't know your writing process but mine is uh, you know, was a lot of uh, trying to outline and stuff because then you're making it all up and the world is your oyster, but that is a very big world. So right. how are you going to deal with it? So in the nonfiction world, do you, do you outline your columns? Do you? I mean, one of them was a thirty thousand word yeah, story. That that, that one outlined. Yeah, yes. yeah, but but I mean, for your yeah. for your normal, or no. do you just sit down and go with what you're thinking? Um, usually, I go with what would I tell my friend or you know my wife or if I'm trying to get them interested in the story how would I within two or three sentences Mm -hmm. because in the newspaper world that may be all you get Mm -hmm. Um, we used to call it in the old print journalism world before the jump before the story jumped from the first page of the sports section to making Mm -hmm. people turn that page a lot of times two-thirds of the time or something people would never make that turn you got to pull them in you got to pull them in within Mm -hmm. the first three paragraphs or so so I don't outline um, a, a normal length column, but I do outline anything that's really longer than that. Well, if you think about it, I mean, because you're, you're telling, as you said, you're telling a story even in nonfiction. When you're telling a story in fiction, you know, there's the plot, but then there's also the theme or the message of the story, which a lot of times depends on character, right? right? And so I guess the plot in the sports world could be how the team's doing or what who they drafted or what their record is, but the story, that's not the story. That's not what's going to cause people necessarily to continue reading, right? That's they, right. they want to get some human interest aspect or what's, what's the or message? What's the message out of here? Yeah, yeah, or, something, something um, you can take home with yes, you. Yes, that's right. And so sports, is a lot of, there's a lot of different types of it. You, can, the game, you know, if you're just writing about a game, then the plot is what happened in the game, whether the team won or lost or whatever. But my favorite types of stories have usually been human interest type mm-hmm. stories where you are – writing more of uh, about a person about a um, 
a character almost and trying to understand that person on a deeper level than whether they scored a touchdown or gave up a touchdown the last week. We'll talk about that routine just a minute. Uh, I assume you have some kind of routine that you follow with your writing. I mean, for a lot of writers, writing is not work, but for you, it's your job. It's your vocation. Right, yes. Um, If I don't have a – I can write very quickly in a very chaotic situation because I've been in a whole lot of places where there's a lot of screaming going on. The press box. The press boxes (laughs) at, you know, Cameron Indoor Stadium and and wherever there's a lot of uh, noise. Actually, press box is not too loud. They'll throw you out if you cheer. So a press box that's glassed in is actually sort of a hermetically sealed environment. But if you're in a basketball game, that's more like super loud, like you can't hear yourself think. Uh, But if let's say uh, if it's something that I have a little time on, then I, my best writing time is probably between, I'm one of those more night owl people, I probably write best between 9 and about midnight. Mm-hmm. At night, I know a lot of people like to get at it real early. Uh, for me, I sort of like to work up to it by doing a couple of easy things at the beginning of a day, like answering emails or mm-hmm. setting up future interviews or something. I don't like to just jump right into writing at 7 in the morning. How about you? Yeah, well, you know, this podcast thing, I was going to ask you about the vices that interfere with your writing. My podcasting <laughs> interferes with my writing sometimes, too. <laughs> right. But uh, I wanted to ask this question. Uh, my, my grandfather was a sports editor for the Charlotte Observer, and he, he was there in the 30s and the 40s, and he wrote a column, not too dissimilar to the kind of things y'all yeah. do. But he there was a there was one he wrote one time that I'll, I keep going back to because as a writer, and he titled it Writing a Column. And he started out with uh, you roll a long sheet of white paper in your typewriter. And you don't use typewriters anymore, no. right? And you type in the upper left-hand corner, sport, sports parade, two-column, 10-point, proof, two-wade. And you do that very neatly. Then you wipe the perspiration off your face, and you look out the window, and you see the taxi man taking with his cab. And you think you recognize the guy. And then you look back at your piece of paper. And then you think you need a Coke, and so you stand up. And you get, so he goes on and on and on. And, and he, and he, and, procrastination. And, then, yes. and, then he, and what he's saying is, uh, and I guess it gets to my question is, because he, he's like, you come back and you've got your Coke and you're ready to go. Then you roll a brand-new sheet of paper in, and your eyes are filled with determination. And you look back and you type the words again, sports, sports parade, three count, two proof. And then you just, you're stuck. And so do you get stuck as a sports writer every now and then? Yeah, sure, I yeah. do. I, what do know, you do to get through your writer's block? Because apparently what he did at the end of the story was he found that someone else had written a column and jazzed him a little bit from another newspaper, and he said, oh, now i got something to write about. Huh. Yeah. Uh, for me, I don't ever let a, uh, I don't ever have a completely white, uh, in my case, laptop, laptop screen. I do not let that happen. So what I do is transcribe interviews first, or get, go back to stuff I've written previously or whatever and you and put that at the bottom so that at least the screen looks like it's got some stuff on it. <laughs> it looks like a few you're, paragraphs. You're cheating you know? your brain into thinking you've right. already, pr- you've already co- started. You're something. You've started, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I have that. that's all at the bottom. So my notes are at the bottom, and then I start writing at the top. So, yes, that's the way I kind of cheat myself. We had a, a guy who was a sports editor, then became a very beloved managing editor, Frank Barrows, who died recently. Right. And Frank used to literally strap himself into a chair with a kind of a homemade seatbelt. <laughs> so he couldn't get up and do exactly, you know, what your relative did. Yeah. So yeah. everyone has their uh, way to way to get past writer's block, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of questions about not, uh, fiction writing for a second. This book that we're going to talk about was your first uh, foray into the first fiction and world. Only, first, yes. first and only. Um, and this this does. And I don't know if this goes to fiction and nonfiction, but do you sometimes surprise yourself 
as to where your writing takes you once you start putting the words on the page? It does. I've heard fictional writers say that a lot, that they'll yeah. get their characters and they start bumping into each other and they don't really know where the story is right. going exactly. Yeah. Uh, or I, they find out things in, in writing the story about their characters that they didn't actually oh, feel on the surface until... How they would you, react yeah. and stuff. I yeah. guess, I, you know, I, I would hate to pretend like I'm a big-time fiction writer, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know really how that works. Well, it's in all this personal. case, yeah. it was, uh, for me, it was... This you know book was a Christmas gift to my four children originally, and the, all four characters were based largely on their personalities. So I knew pretty much how they would react, uh, or or hoped they would react in this situation. But yes, in general, I can certainly see that you know that happening that people go in a place, go somewhere they're not, and that's one of the joys of writing. I think is going somewhere you're not sure where you're ending up. Yeah, so before we go to that uh, book, uh, just a couple more questions about writing in general. Um, First of all, what do you enjoy most about writing? Well, two things. One, finishing, right, and (laughs) and it being actually published wherever wherever you're publishing. But the second part is I like when you've finished all your interviewing and that part I'm talking about where I have all my stuff transcribed and I Mm -hmm. know I've got some really good material Mm -hmm. and so I already maybe have an idea of what the lead is as we call it the first two paragraphs or something and that moment when all is possible and you have a bunch of good stuff I love that moment because it's sort of I guess it's a little bit like the tip off of a basketball game Mm. or something or you're excited to take what you found and get it on the page right you got it I should that's exactly right so with all your years of experience and you you actually have a son who's actually thinking about going into the trade right he is yes he's He's doing doing an internship right now so and maybe you've had these conversations with him but uh what would you tell your younger writing self about writing that you wish you had known when you got started in this business well, I, I wish I had probably started experimenting a little earlier. Early in my career, I was so involved in trying to, to be a really good sports writer that I really stuck very narrowly to that um, sort of dynamic. And one thing to my detriment was I re- there was a great – I went to UNC Chapel Hill. There was a great photo journalism class there taught by a really good professor – and I didn't take it, and that mm-hmm. was dumb. I should have taken it because nowadays it's very important to be able to shoot your own photos when you're on assignment or uh, record your own videos. Mm-hmm. The uh, versatility, and I've kind of had to learn that piecemeal along the way. You but even have to do Twitter now, too, right? Yeah, yeah. I enjoy Twitter, but <laughs> yeah, there's some yeah. other parts of social media yeah. I don't enjoy. Yeah. So, yeah, that I would just say, you know, I tell trying to be as versatile as you can. I probably was stuck a little too long in one pigeonhole. Okay, so w- one more question. So you got this job, day job. You're writing all these articles. How do you fit in writing a nonfiction book of the links that you've written? Uh, you've got to plan that out a little bit. You do, yeah. And, uh, but, but to get some of these out, I mean, you got to get a book out like Panthers Rising quick because you don't know where they're going to dive the next season, right? That's right. They had to get it out before <laughs> the next season, which, and, yeah, and, which they in, indeed did uh, tank pretty badly. So how do you how do, you do that and, and keep well, up with you? Well, I've used a number of vacation weeks on books. You okay. Know, um, and so that's part of it. I've, I've kind of sometimes just taken – time on a staycation and right. I don't have a writing you know I don't go off to the mountains and write I, I just go upstairs I have a little writing office up there but uh, and then that that nine to midnight period you know sometimes I would just be more 
uh, disciplined and get all my work done for the newspaper by gosh by 6:30 and and then go up there and write for maybe three hours at night or whatever but it's yeah that's one reason why I haven't done any more in the last two or three years as I get older I'm yeah. like wow this is uh, this is a quite a bear to uh, to work this hard to to do these books so the next book I do I'm gonna you know, I'll get motivated again, and then I'll do one, and then it's sort of you get nostalgic for the process of it, and then you re- you start thinking about, uh, oh my goodness, that's a lot of work. Maybe yeah. maybe I'll wait just another year until I get something I really want to say. All right, let's talk about uh, Lost on the Road to Nowhere. You you wrote this book as a gift to your family. I actually did the same thing with the first book I wrote, and I, I kind of joked about it at times to say when I gave it to him. They thought they were getting socks, <laughs> <laughs> which was better. Uh, yeah, which is yeah. And so they toss it over, and they're looking for the electronics. You know, <laughs> right, that's right. Uh, so, what uh, what possessed you to, to do this, uh, uh, and uh, how did your family react to it? Uh, at the time, my kids were all a bunch uh, much younger, and we've been fortunate that all four of ours really have grown up mm-hmm. reading and liking to read, and and we read together. Um, when they were younger as a family. And I've always encouraged people, I think that's a great thing to do with, with your kids. And so we had gone through a bunch of books, uh, you know, uh, Jack London, you know, the Harry right. Potter books, a bunch of ones, wonderful classics. And after reading a bunch, and then we'd gone through some not so good ones. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to try to write one for them. Uh, and and all that you put, you put them in the story. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I put them in the story. Well, tell, actually, tell the, actually tell with, the listeners, listeners that that's one way to get them to read it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Here's your, here it is. You're in the story now. Figure out what you did next. Yeah. Um, so I did, and I used different names to begin with, but I was putting them in the story and they were reading it and sort of almost editing it as, you know, dad, I would never do that. Or I would yeah. never say that or whatever. Stories so they completely got the, they fictional. got the rough copy, right? They got it. They got the rough draft. Yeah. yeah they were, they, was, they were your, ba- they were your beta readers. Yeah. They were, they were. <laughs> and so they did, and they would make some changes sometimes. Uh, and then, but then they they liked it, and they were like, "No, use our real names; that'd be better." You know, now now nowadays, sometimes they're they probably would have just me just as soon I used fake names, but now it's out there, and so yeah. you know, there it was. It's been a few years. They've all they all kind of made their peace with it. Their own school does the uh, book as a project every year and so they've all had to go on through a class where they are you <laughs> where, know, where they're the subjects of yeah the where they're a little bit and and so the teachers usually make a rule you may not ask georgia about the book or right, whatever right. or whoever the kid is in the class all right let's let's set up the the book and i'm gonna have you read a couple of short sections here um set up the book we've got uh, a trip that uh, you and your wife uh, elise are taking with your four children uh, you, you you and your wife don't feature much in the book. You just well, sort of we're in and out quick. You're yeah. in and out quick, but you're driving, and 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 Scott has this great idea that he's going to take a shortcut, right? Because you exactly. know best. You know best. Even though the road's blocked off, that's it's, right. A very it's, stubborn it's, dad. He's got a barricade yes, there. Yeah, that's right. we're going to take this road because you know you know the best way to go. Of and course, the shortest yeah. way to go. And there is a uh, there's an accident early on. Mm-hmm. A uh, a deer runs out in front of the car, and so we start this scene where your wife where you're unconscious in the scene your wife is barely conscious and she's talking with i believe your oldest child um chapel right that's right he's 11 at the time and, and the others are in like seven five yeah, three yeah. eight five and almost two okay yeah. so pick it up there can you wake your dad up mom said trying to move her head to see what i was doing no i said his phone's broken and something's wrong with him 
Something's wrong with me, too, she said, looking down at where the dashboard jammed into her stomach. I can't move one of my legs. Do you want me to get you out, I said. But when I looked at where she was and all the car parts and branches that had circled around her like a spider's web, I knew I would need a lot of help. Don't move me, she said. I might be really hurt. I think your dad's unconscious. You're going to need to go get help, all of you. What, I said. We're not leaving you. Someone will come. No, she said. Her voice didn't sound that hot, but she did move one of her hands and put it on my cheek. Look at me, Chapel. That row we've been on, hardly anyone uses it anymore. It's not even on the maps. Your dad knows about it just because he used to drive on it in college. He never should have gone around that barricade to get on it. No one may come this way for days. She took another shuddering breath and looked at me. Her voice sounded sort of desperate. You all need to go, she said. All of you, even the baby. It was 15 degrees this morning when we left. If it takes a while to get help, I don't want any of you freezing to death. You need to get out of this car. You need to move. And you need to go find help. And no matter what you do, stay together. So, Scott, this is a, a, a great um, plot line. You've got the parents uh, who are the ones – roles are reversed now. The parents are the ones in need of uh, help from the children who are always the ones that the parents are waiting on. Right. And the children are of such an age and, and the weather is such that it's not clear that these children are going to be able to do, and yet she realizes that if they stay, they're all going to be in trouble. Mm-hmm. And so they have, they have to move. I, was there something that uh, kind of got into your head that, that prompted this idea of, of, you know, our kids not being safe in a certain circumstance, us not being available to them, they have to p- do it on their own? Let me see how this is going to happen if they had to. I've had, um, you know, nightmares like all parents, I think, of, of doing something harmful to my kids by mistake. And one of those has often been on a long drive when we're in a van, pretty much exactly like the one in this fictional book. And then... You know how you every now and then have to, you you look down or you're, something catches your eye or whatever, and you suddenly have to jerk the wheel back for a mm. second, and you go, oh, my gosh, what would have happened right. if I'd gone off the road? And so it was kind of, I guess, I was sort of writing my nightmare there in a little bit in that uh, your kid suddenly, who you, that you do, would do anything for, you would die for, but what if they really had to go out and do something that you absolutely couldn't help them on? So, you know, there's, as you say, this, at this point, the parents are taken out of it. The kids have to survive. The other uh, part of the reason why I did it this way is because my kids, especially at the time, three boys and then a girl, and the three boys were fought like cats and dogs. And so part of this was <laughs> teamwork. hope yeah. that maybe if they read about their teamwork and sibling uh, non-rivalry they might in a come book, together. exactly, yeah. maybe it would inspire them. And, and uh, I don't, it had very limited success in Machiavellian that. Machiavellian genius, right? <laughs> right. So the, the cover of the book, the, the listeners can't uh, see it here, but certainly when they go by, I think, see it. Uh, you've got a sepia tone uh, it's kind of a photograph on the front long road woods leaves in the road four children dressed in coats and gloves walking down a lonely road one of the children is on the back of the oldest that would be georgia the youngest right right and these are your kids right these are those are my kids now the picture was taken what a few years a couple of years after the start of the book so she's a little little bigger than a two-year-old right that's right that's right (laughs) i think when she was three and a half but you can see it here you can see what's going on and it kind of gives you this sort of i think we talked about this this stand by me kind of thing where the the four kids are going down the railroad track you know in the middle of nowhere and 
one of my favorite movies and a a wonderful uh, novella by Stephen King that was called The Body. Look Mm -hmm. that one up if you haven't ever read that. Yeah, so so the so the kids head out. Um, let's do another read here. Uh, this will be on page fifty-six. Uh, we've already gone through several calamities uh, by this time on page fifty-six. They've they've been a little ingenious. They've made a sled out of something because it started to snow. They found a little piece of roof of a car and they made that into a sled and saved themselves some walking time. And then they come across a bear right yes yes they, and one they, of the youngest the bear, uh, yes. steps up right and when the bear runs the bear off runs yes, the bear off that's so, right. and now we're sort of uh they've been walking for a long time right and it's getting dark and the oldest is concerned uh and is having to exercise some of these leadership skills you were talking about and they all come together so let's pick it up on about uh page 56 i looked at my watch again at 9 p.m I could see the watch's hands by the moonlight. We had been walking for most of the past five hours, even with breaks for water and the few minutes we had spent chasing off the bear, and the fact we had definitely slowed down some in the last couple of hours, we had to have covered at least seven miles, maybe eight, and we hadn't seen a soul, not a car, not a person, not a house, nothing. I thought the world was supposed to be so crowded. There were six billion people in it, our teacher had said in social studies class, but it seemed deserted to us. We had yelled help every time we made it to the top of another hill at first, but lately we hadn't even been trying that. It made us feel too lonely every time nobody answered. Are we going to walk all night, Chapel? Salem asked. His teeth chattered a little as he said it, and I felt a sudden burst of sympathy for him. He had been carrying all our water and snacks, which hadn't run out yet because we had stocked up so thoroughly at that gas station. But that sort of load couldn't be easy for a second grader. Neither could walking for this long. Not all night, I said. I don't think any of us could do that. But I don't know where to stop. We've got to stay warm tonight, and we've got to find help somehow. And that gas station was deserted, and they just happened to find some old well, food, food stuff, right? No, yeah. they, were, they had stopped there beforehand. Um, oh, well, they, had, they, had, when they the were, hadn't had the wreck yet. Oh, they, hadn't they had just so they, bought a bunch of stuff. I got you. you. Okay. But they did come across a trailer. They end up, li- yeah, they spend the night at a mobile home, uh, ultimately. Which uh, is uh, dilapidated and deserted, yes, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, something that people had, yeah, it's been deserted for years. You know, when I, I, I thought about self-publishing versus uh, sending this off and trying to get it published, and I went through a little bit of back and forth with that on a couple of agents, but several of the agents thought, well, you need to, make it even more exciting maybe one of the children needs to die in the book or you know there's it's got to have even more 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 and i thought it was fairly dramatic already but i was like none of the children are gonna die not killing off for sure not killing off my kids yeah (laughs) exactly Uh, well sometimes they just don't know everything right yeah Yeah. um okay so this book is um a quick read i you know i read it one evening and uh I think adults can enjoy it too, but you say it's being taught in some elementary schools. Some yeah. around, yeah, maybe half a dozen around here. It's, you know, it's, it's survival it's sweet skills. Spot and, is probably third yeah. through fifth grade. Yeah. You know, and and it's but it's gone probably between ages eight and fourteen is usually what I tell people. Any designs on writing more fiction? I mean, you know, there's a lot of fiction you could write out of the sports world, probably. There right? is. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think yes. When I'm a little less time starved in my life, I'd certainly like to try some more fiction, probably. Yeah. But right now, it's uh, like so many of us in the you know 
parents that are working and stuff. You're, you're just trying to keep your head above water doing what you need to do, right? So uh, I remember some one fiction book. Uh, I don't even know who wrote it, but as a child when I was playing sports, my dad gave it to me. It's called Run Shorty Run. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as I think back on that, I'm thinking – what, did he see something in me? You know, you're not short, but you're slow, Landis. You know, <laughs> run, shorty, run. <laughs> run, shorty, run. And great uh, title. Great title. Great title. All right. So this book, uh, Scott, uh, you can find it online, and uh, and you can get more information about it at LostOnTheRoadToNowhere.com. That's that right? right. That's right. Where yeah. can where can people find uh, your other work? Uh, it's, uh, ScottFowlerSports.com. Is that right? And, yeah. And the Charlotte Observer. Com, uh, my all my columns are at CharlotteObserver.com. You can find uh, on our on our website uh, for the newspaper. We publish everything first now, digitally. So it goes in the, it goes on our website before it goes into the print product. As for my own books, probably the simplest way is just. Search Scott Fowler on Amazon.com. You can find all of them there. Some of them are in, you know, in bookstores around, but that's the simplest way probably to find any of these uh, things we're talking about. So this comes, this episode will come out in the fall. So uh, any predictions on the Panthers? I mean, you know, the Panthers this year, I feel like are fairly fragile, and that's partly because of Cam's arm. I mm-hmm. think if Cam is healthy plays a full 16 game season they'll make the playoffs and if anything messes that up the rest mm. of it i don't think can be made up for and they'll have a third straight mm. non-playoff season any predictions on the next book you're going to write mm. no i <laughs> i they've i've let the uh, life kind of dictate that you know yeah. so um I don't know that it'll be Panther-oriented. I've done four of those now, and that's a gracious plenty on a mm-hmm. team that's only been around 25 years. Uh, so I'm, I'm not quite sure yet. got a couple of ideas, but nothing that's uh, significantly down the road yet. All right. We'll be watching. Uh, everybody, you can find Scott every day in the newspaper or, and online now digitally. Yeah, with charlotteobserver.com. Yeah, right, that's where right. to go. Yeah. yeah, and you can find these books online as well. So give it a list. Scott, thanks so much for – taking time to come to finally come on my podcast yes. after all these other places you've been yeah well it's, it's been a real pleasure i love yeah. talking about writing yeah. so yeah. thanks for having me great well that's it for today another fine author giving voice to the written words in next week's episode we have poets grace Acasio and justin hunt and we explore themes of family and relationships which appear in much of their writing justin reads several poems that speak to the past He also reads a section from his memoir where he's driving across rural land no more traveled now than it was a half century earlier when he was a young boy in the back of the family's Big Fin Cadillac on the way to vacation in Colorado. Grace reads poems inspired by her mother in the time when Rosa Parks took a seat on the bus. Her great aunt, who could overturn injustice like a mother right-siding an upside-down child, and a grandmother whose scrapbook revealed a letter of her youth from an unknown admirer. Grace starts with a poem called Fall Festival inspired by family hayrides at harvest time and Justin starts with a poem called Afternoon on Slate Creek that captures the mood of a father and son together on a low bank, fishing poles in hand, bobber on the float. For periodic updates about the show and upcoming authors, please sign up for the podcast email list at charlottereaderspodcast.com. We promise not to spam you, because Landis says that takes too much time. And if you do sign up as a thank you, Landis will give you an ebook complete with illustrations, his first in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. 
Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our fine sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can listen to Charlotte Readers Podcast episodes for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is available on social media, on Facebook at Charlotte Readers Podcast, on Twitter at Charlotte Reader, on Instagram and on LinkedIn at Landis Wade. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.